Welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. In New York, I'm Amba Gregorian, filling in for John Tarleton. John is the editor-in-chief, and I am the assistant editor of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot org. Now, turning to the news... In today's edition of the Independent News Hour, we will speak with a member of the Flatbush African Burial Ground Coalition about a current struggle to preserve an African burial ground located on the corners of Bedford and Church Avenues in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Then we will turn to some breaking news. Today, the city announced that two safe injection sites in Harlem and Washington Heights will be that will be run by nonprofit harm reduction groups will start offering their services as soon as this week. This much-needed addition to our public infrastructure comes after 10,000 overdoses resulted in deaths of people between April of 2020 and 2021. We will speak with an addiction doctor about the new sites and what it means for New Yorkers. Then we will pivot to global news and speak with author Kostas Panayotakis about his new article in The Independent called Omicron Variant Underscores Why We Must Abolish Global Vaccine Apartheid. On this day in November 1999, a World Trade Organization conference in Seattle kicked off, which was met with the resistance of 50 to 70,000 protesters from all over the globe who traveled to Seattle to protest globalization and capitalism. The conference and protests around it would be known as the Battle of Seattle. One of the many reasons anti-corporate protesters filled the streets and blocked the World Trade Organization delegates from entering the conference center was a proposed agreement on trade-related intellectual property, which was being pushed by pharmaceutical companies to further enshrine their patent rights and deny access to life-saving medicines to people in poor countries. The primary concern at the time was denial of treatments to AIDS patients in Africa and elsewhere. Now here we are, and now here we are with big pharma denying COVID-19 vaccines to much of the global South and the new Omicron variant emerging in Southern Africa and potentially doing serious damage to wealthy nations that continue to put patents and profits before people's life. Now we're going to turn to a clip from the Infernal Noise Brigade describing their decision to play music during the Battle of Seattle marches. The Infernal Noise Brigade was a Seattle, Washington-based musical group who originally formed to participate in the protests at the World Trade Organization meeting of 99. Here we are going to hear from them. This was started during the WCO in Seattle. And uh, a few months before the WTO, we were, uh, a few people that are in the band were talking about having this kind of noisy procession to lead people throughout the streets to various actions and to also provide energy for a lot of the a lot of the protests. Because, I mean, you, you're out there all day and it gets tiring, no food, no water, it's hard. And, like, when you hear a drum beat, you just automatically like, wow, like, hey, hey, I can raise my fist in defiance against the state. It was at this convergence of protesters, activists, and organizers in Seattle that independent media, better known as indie media, aka non-corporate media, was founded. Both the independent newspaper and WBAI, the station that you're listening to, are vestiges of this non-corporate media boom of the Y2K. 
Now, today is Giving Tuesday, as many of you know, and we encourage you to keep, as we say, vestiges, these few, few forms of independent media alive. So please, before we turn to our interviews, call 212-209-2950 and give to WBAI anything you can. Again, that number is 212-209-2950 or go straight online to give the number to WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950 or give the number to WBAI.org in order to keep independent media alive. Now we will head to a short music break, excuse me, and when we come back, we'll speak about an African burial ground in Flatbush, New York. Nos tienen miedo porque no tenemos miedo. 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 Están atrás, van para atrás, piensan atrás, son el atrás, están detrás de su armadura militar. Nos ven reír, nos ven luchar, nos ven amar, nos ven jugar, nos ven Están atrás, van para atrás, piensan atrás, son el atrás, están detrás de su armadura militar. Nos ven reír, nos ven luchar, nos ven amar, nos ven jugar, nos ven detrás de su armadura. Nos tienen miedo porque no tenemos miedo. 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 Sorry, folks, I was muted. That was Nos tienen miedo porque no tenemos miedo, or They fear us because we do not have fear, by Liliana Felipe and Jesus Rodriguez. I am Ambe Gargarian, and you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and online at WBAI.org. 
And just a note about the song we just heard, it became pop, a, a popular resistance hymn in 2009 Honduras among thousands of people who were protesting for months against the military coup that ousted leftist president Manuel Zelaya and threw him out of the country. Now, currently in 2021 in Honduras, thousands are taking the streets to celebrate the leftist presidential candidate Xiomara Castro's likely win. This historic election saw a record voter turnout and could signal the end of a 12-year-long brutal brutal regime under the conservative national party which rose to power after a u.s-backed coup in 2009 overthrew democratically elected leftist president manuel zelaya siomaya castro who's zelaya's wife would become the first woman to serve as president of honduras if her victory is confirmed this comes after peru and bolivia both saw for the people presidential wins and triumphs of democracy in the past year now turning to brooklyn in October 2020, without consulting the community, the city announced a high-rise housing development at the corner of Bedford and Church Avenues in Flatbush. The site is the last remaining section of an African burial ground dating at least to the 1700s. The Flatbush African Burial Ground Coalition is a group of artists, historians, activists, organizers, lawyers, engineers, and neighborhood residents who are committed to protecting the Flatbush African Burial Ground at 227 to 220. Sorry, at 2274-2286 Church Ave, folks, that is just the intersection of Bedford and Church Avenues in Flatbush. Here to speak with us today is Joan Alexander Bakrin, a proud member of the Flatbush African Burial Ground Coalition and an advocate and active member of her community. She has been a big part of the collective determination in preserving the sacred Brooklyn ground. Joan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Amber. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're so happy to have you here. So let's get into it. Tell us about how this burial ground was discovered. Uh, have Flatbush locals always been aware of it? Um, or, or was this a more recent discovery? Uh, well, the, to answer your question specifically, we have some of us have known about the site, but it was specifically... Um, we have begun to pay specific attention to it because mm -hmm. of the planned build that they that the um, mayor, uh, our president, and the local council member was looking to do, uh, which is why they created a Flatbush African Burial Ground Task Force. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that task force, uh, are the they engaged the community, and because the community was engaged in a very passive way, members of that community stepped up and formed a, a basic group to start to unpack what it means when they say that they're going to be building on this site. Mm -hmm. So as we begun to do our, our due diligence, it was noted that it was a burial ground. Uh, then we became, to, became fully aware of the troubled history of said burial ground, um, wherein we noted that since the 1800s, even before then, it was a known burial ground. It was somewhere where the Lenape Indians were first buried, uh, were first interred. And then as a result of the, the slaves being starting to, uh, to transition, the slave owners determined that they needed a space to host those slaves. So then they started to inter our ancestors in this location. So some people knew about it. Most did not as we began to engage our community then it started to emerge that 
that, yeah, we were not quite aware of what used, what happened on the site. We all knew there was, there were buildings there, but we were not aware that it was, those buildings were placed on the backs of our, our ancestors. Right. And tell us just shortly about the schools that were there and um, children finding remains and then pivot to what is trying to be built there right now and, and, and how you're fighting against it. So in the 1800s, we had uh, first a school built there uh, that hosted local youth. Of course, no slaves, just local youth. Then you had the emergence of a shul, which is a Jewish place of worship. Uh, then it, it, it then became a, a all-girl yeshiva, so which is another school for, uh, for girls in, in that particular community that was known as PS90. Uh, then there was a, as the, the building began to, to lose its, its, um, its structure, we, they then determined that they being the powers that be determined that they were going to raise the school. And at that moment, as they prepared for this, before they prepared for this, let me step back for a second. I think I missed a very important piece, which is the, the, the identification of remains on the site where it was noted, and this is, uh, anyone could research this as well, it was noted that children at the school found skeletal remains. First, there was a skull found that a child, you know, because that's what children do, they put it on a stick and they started running around with it. And then other students took teeth home, uh, again, not recognizing the the that there were actual human remains. They took it home to their their parents, and then they... Of course, then there was a, a controlled dig made within, uh, with, uh, on the lot, and then they found that there were other remains there. They, um, dis- they reinterred re- remains. We were told, we're not sure, but we were told that it was reinterred at the Dutch burial ground. Um, but we are now requesting that those remains be reinterred at least um, with respect back in the space where they were initially uh, housed. Uh, and then as we now look to October 2020, there was a Flatbush African Burial Ground Task Force formed because, as we noted, historical census and maps identified to us that there was a burial ground on that space. We even have found proof that the burial ground stretches potentially under Erasmus High School, definitely across the street where there is now a a gas station and, and, and some other lots that, that abut the actual burial ground. We found um, evidence of remains. We have identified that Eve, who made it to 100 plus years old, is indeed interred in that site, which is why occasionally you hear it referred to as Eve's garden. Wow. Uh, so now skipping back to October, when, our, when the task force was formed and they began to engage with the community. It was done as a result of a fi- findings that they that they had. Where in 2005 there was a controlled excavation, another controlled excavation, where they found remains. And at that moment, they stopped. No more building, nothing to be done at the site. They raised the the um, the structure to the ground. And then a few years later, we saw the the need to move um, another cultural organization from Caton and Flatbush, and they were thinking about positioning them on that lot as well. And then they did a, another, again, 
control dig where they found some remains. And again, it was stopped. But now, now we go back to October 2020, wherein it was identified that this would be the site of affordable housing and vocational programming for youth, which of course we need. It is a, you know, there's a lot of, we use that word equity and equity is not something that is truly um, considered and realized by black and brown community members. Um, We do now, as we're thinking about it, we do have opportunity for these vocational programs in Erasmus Hall High School and a few blocks away at the Flatbush Public Library. We also have affordable housing. If you put your back to this gate and you look up, there's a huge structure that is there that is summarily empty um, Mm -hmm. that we can house our neighbors who are in need of spaces to rest their head. We have opportunity. So we we challenged the, the, the concept of, of affordable housing on this lot because we, we asked for the sacrilege. Did you just ask for the, for, for the decimation of our culture, of our, 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 our ancestors? They have built Brooklyn. They put Brooklyn squarely on their back. I mean, if you think about Flatbush and Canarsie, we were known as the, the Mecca of carnations. So we had the best carnations in the world. World renowned carnations came out of Canarsie and, and, and Flatbush. And imagine that something as ugly as slavery is the thing that made this beautiful thing thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now as you think about that and you look around at the buildings and, and, and just in general, the reality of what slavery was like, yes, it wasn't to the scale of the South I mean, the largest slave owner in the 1800s had maybe 16 slaves. But if they have one, I think it's too much. Well, let's talk, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, we'll jump ahead a little. Talk about, talk about, you know, the extent of slavery in New York. It, it did exist here. It was abolished in, in 1827, which yes. means it was, you know, around for 200 years during the foundation of what was called, you know, the New York Colony, Colonial NYC, you know. And during those 200 years, as much of 20% of the population of Manhattan was enslaved Africans. You know, they they must have had a huge impact on the foundation of the city. Talk, talk about that to the extent that you're familiar with it and, and talk about, you know, who, yeah, who, who is buried there and, and why it matters, which may seem obvious to some, but why it matters to keep that sacred. Well, so you've, you've touched, you, you've hit, hit it right on the head. Slavery was abolished in 1827, but clarity, it continued. It continued. They used slave labor. They, they, they paid slave wages and they continue to, to force to, um, to, to, I'll use, I'll keep using that word, to force our ancestors to do the work, whether, because we were an agricultural Mecca, right? So this is mm-hmm. kind of where uh, quite a few of the advances were made. I mean, when they were um, pouring the concrete, when they were formulating any of the structures that you see as you look around, the beautiful buildings as you, see, as you look around, it was due to slave labor. If you, if you go just slightly a field of, of Brooklyn and you go into Manhattan, there's actually a, a in wall, right around Wall Street, there is a plaque that notes the site of where the slaves were sold. Right. Right. So, so as you're thinking about all of these items, you have to think about the fact that even though slavery was abolished in 1827, it continued quite into 1850 because then they were selling slaves into to the Southern 
uh, states into to Latin America, into the Caribbean. So it, it became the norm then, right? So it was abolished here, but it continued. Mm-hmm. And Brooklyn and New York had a hand in it. So and, it's interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, we and there is an African burial ground down in Wall Street. Um, but what's what's the significance of having one here in Brooklyn? What's the significance of having one? You know, right now it exists, but it's obviously been fought over land for a long time. A lot of uncertainty with all these digs. I mean, even that is difficult. So what's the significance of having this, you know, officiated one in Brooklyn? Um, so, to- so as we step can I, can I address that piece where you say the, 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 with the digs? So it's, it's one of the things that we found problematic was okay. that there was a consistent narrative around that there were only a small number of remains found. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, to be clear, it, there was a small number of remains found because it was a small site that was dug. They, they had a controlled dig within a, a very finite location, and that's why they only found what they found. Mm-hmm. So I just want to clarify that. Full stop. So now as we so now look the to, coalition, and, and and sorry for our listeners here, but I think this is interesting stuff. So so you're saying actually it's they actually should have dug more, and the coalition would like to know the extent of this that they actually should put more you know resources into figuring out how many people are actually there. Or go ahead with that. So actually, we have three specific asks, and, and it no longer includes having them disturb our ancestors any further. They have been consistently disturbed since the 1800s, including when they raised the structure to create the lot that you see there present, the empty beer lot. We have community members, coalition members who go there and take care of the lot and, and do the upkeep. So when we, so we are not, we're no longer interested in, in having um, additional disturbance made to our ancestral remains. Um, they have other equipment that they can use that no longer d- disturbs the land. Our thought is that, so to to do what you re- the, the, the to do something in response to the question that you asked in terms of yes, there is a burial ground, um, there is a commemoration of, of said burial ground in Manhattan. That was also trouble because the community was trying to get a just a commemoration. A, a specific memorialization of that particular space, but there's a building on it. There, there's only a very uh, a dedicated space where the community can, and again, that's through months and months and, 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 and many different uh, levels of engagement to make sure that we were able to get this specific thing. For example, there is a burial ground in Harlem that now has a bus depot sitting on it where they disinterred almost 400 um, remains and they, they sent it to... I want to say it was sent to Howard University. I mean, why, why is this something that's acceptable? We have many other burial grounds, Dutch burial grounds and others that are undisturbed. They're, they're, those community members are allowed to rest in peace. We, we argue, we counter as coalition members that this is something that should be, should be done for all. We, the, our African ancestors have put in quite a bit of work to build Brooklyn, to build New York, honor their, 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 their work, honor their contribution to, the, to, to Brooklyn culture, to Brooklyn history, to Brooklyn sustainability, and allow them to rest. Right. And, and um, 
how is the fight going? What are you doing to, 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 you know, make your demands heard and uh, how's it looking for you and, and how can we or our listeners support, support this, learn more about it? Wonderful. So we have been quite busy. We have met with, we are meeting with uh, clergy members because if anybody understands the value of a soul, a clergy member does, we have been meeting, we've been hosting teachbacks with, uh, Dr. Michael Blakey, who, as you know, was instrumental in the framework for the African burial ground that's in Manhattan. We've worked with uh, Rodney Leone, who, as you know, is instrumental in the Ark of the Return for the, U- the United Nations. We're working with community members because our coalition is, is vast. We have different um, community-based organizations and, and just normal James and, and Janets that, that see us on the corner and stop by to offer support. We have met with our um, elected officials. We've got the outgoing borough president who is now the incoming mayor, as well as the outgoing um, city council member who have written letters in support. So where it used to be perceived that they were against our work, they have now written letters of support in in. In, in support of what we're, we're looking to accomplish. We have gotten the support of the incoming council member, the attention of the public advocate, the uh, uh, congresswoman, just, just so many um, community members, elected officials uh, have stepped up and stepped in in this moment to make sure that the site is honored and that the remains of our ancestors who have done so much work uh, just to make sure, again, that Brooklyn is sustainable, that they are, they're being allowed to rest in peace. So the other thing that we've done as well is we put forward our three asks. Because as you know, the, the task force was working with uh, the mayor, uh, council member, and the borough president, as well as community members and HPD, which is Housing Preservation Department, and EDC, which is the Economic de- Development Corps for the, for, for the city of New York. And we have had meetings with them recently. We're looking to have another meeting so that we can identify what needs to happen. But even more than that, we're looking to have hyper-local, hyper-local community engagement, because that is the reason why the coalition was formed, because we recognize that the determinations for the, the use of the land was being made by people who don't live here. So we engaged our community a lot. We provided a, a basic proposal of what we've heard so far from our community, which includes the request that, first of all, the RFP, which is a request for proposal that has been created by, the, by, the, by HPD, let it be halted and allow for a hyper-local, halted, wait, let me step back, halted and the mayor and HPD, et cetera, puts forward a, a puts, basically sends out a, a release that indicates that the RFP will no longer be considered and that for our second request, that a hyper-local, informed, funded engagement of our community be employed so that we can do our third ask, which is to create a community land trust and when we say community land trust, we have begun a teach in for our community so they are aware of what a land trust is. Because for clarity, a land trust is not just around buildings. 
because a lot of the land trusts that you see, for example, in East New York and other places are, are around buildings and affordable housing. But we argue that a community land trust can be literally that community based guidance and support of how the land can be utilized following hyperlocal local impact from our community members. So those are our three asks. Get rid of the RFP and, and put us put a, a statement out that is definitively indicating that it's been canceled. Allow for hyper fully funded, hyper-local engagement of our community so that we can flush out what the community wants to have on the site and then have a community land trust um, utilize to put the, the land back into the hands of a community. Right, Joan. Thank you for explaining that to us. And and, in 30 seconds, in our last question, you know, number two is to involve the hyper-local community. Just explain really quickly how you all have been working in the coalition to involve descendants in this this struggle. Thank you so much for that question, because it allows me to talk about how we have emerged from the initial formation of the Bedford Church Lot Group, uh, which had uh, descendant members in it to a more focused group that centers descendant voices, but includes everyone in our community that wants to be a part of the conversation to make sure to recognize and realize and an community-centered use of the land. So we've been engaging with our community in, in, we've had prayer vigils on the site. Another one of our coalition members, uh, they do drumming every Wednesday on that site where they have prayer. We have uh, Every weekend we have cleanups, we've done planting on the sites, and every time we're engaging with the site, we have walking tours. When we're engaging with the site, it is through the is through community, uh, community-facing work, community-facing engagement. We we are always talking with our community. We have our we also have over 2,000 signatures virtually on a change.org petition, as well as physical petitions that we walk around. And we've hosted um, actions outside of Borough Hall, outside of um, City Hall, and just any place our people are, that's where we have, we have gone. As a matter of fact, this Sunday, coalition members have attended church gatherings. We've, we've gone into churches so that we can make sure that our community is fully informed with not only what is happening with this space, but how they can be involved in it. And we have a website that you can not only go to find out all of the actions and the things that we're doing, you can also find uh, our petition so that you can sign on and, and add your voice to become part of this work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop in the chat the, um, the website, which is a, it's a rather long website. It's very intentional, though. It's a uh, flatbushafricanburialground.org. So Flatbush African Burial Ground, one word, dot org. And that is the website that I'm going to be dropping in the chat. That's how you can become engaged with us. And that's where all of our information lives. Okay, so to all our listeners, it's flatbushafricanburialground.org. That is flatbushafricanburialground.org. Joan Alexander Bakridin of the Flatbush African Burial Ground Coalition, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Amber, for hosting me. 
uh, and thank you for your interest. And I look forward to welcoming you. Uh, to, for to, Today, every Tuesday, we have our meeting. So we look forward to welcoming you or any of our listeners to our meetings so you can help us to preserve this site. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks so now much. We'll go to a short music break and then we'll be back with uh, harm reduction and safe injection sites. Korodia Amayame Drame Lenyumbiable by Nahawa Dumbia. That's the Malian music, south, Ma- south of Mali. And we're going to continue hearing this that long song for the rest of our music breaks, if, if you liked it as much as I do. <laughs> I am Ambigargarian, and you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and online at WBAI.org. Uh, quickly, before we turn to our second segment guest, on this Giving Tuesday, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 212-209-2950 or going straight to give the number to WBAI.org to support this listener-sponsored non-corporate media You might think everyone else is donating, but today's your day. So please call 212-209-2950 or go straight to give the number to WBAI.org on this Giving Tuesday. Thank you, everybody who can donate. Now, turning to a topic that might hit home for many of our listeners or their loved ones, in an attempt to curb a surge in overdose deaths caused by increasingly potent street drugs that are laced with other illicit substances. New York City is authorizing two supervised injection sites in Manhattan in East Harlem and in Washington Heights that will begin operating as soon as today or this week. We still have to figure out a few of the details on this, but there will be trained staff at the two sites represented by New York Harm Reduction Reduction Educators and Washington Heights Corner Projects. And they will provide clean needles, administer naloxone, known as Narcan, to reverse overdoses, and provide users with options for addiction treatment. Users will, of course, bring their own drugs. New York will be the first and only U.S. city to officially authorize injection sites. And we don't know all the details, like I said, but 
all of this is a part of a, of, um, of an approach to, to addiction and substance abuse called harm reduction. And here to talk to us about harm reduction, safe use of drugs, and what safe injection sites can mean to users in their community around them is Melanie McLennan, an NYC-based substance abuse doctor and a good friend of mine. Hi, Doc. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alva. Absolutely. So let's start out simple. You know, a lot of people don't know what harm reduction is. It applies to a lot of dangerous things in life. But talk about harm reduction, how it applies to substance abuse or substance use. It does apply to a lot of things in our lives. And to help bring it home, harm reduction applies to wearing boots instead of flip-flops if it's snowy outside. Harm reduction is a way to make our lives safer. Harm reduction is it, as it applies to the use of drugs, cigarettes, alcohol, is, you, is to attempt to permit, pe- permit people to use as they're choosing to use, and as humans have chosen to use psychoactive substances for pretty much as long as we know that there are humans, in the safest way possible. So that means... You do not share needles. Now, a clean, fresh syringe and needle can be five bucks on the street. Mm -hmm. And a used one is one to two dollars. If in in terms of drug use specifically in the UK, in the 90s and the when HIV became so prevalent among IV drug users, they began you doing um, needle and needle exchange sites and supervision sites. England also permits you to prescribe, as a doctor, to prescribe morphine to a heroin addict. This country does not permit that. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the effort to keep people safer, to not have infectious disease run rampant, especially in younger people, as it's often younger people who are using um, IV drugs, not always, but to a certain extent, um, and to reduce the cost of these health cares on, on the community in terms of both money and humanity. You know, if you have an entire portion of your community wiped out with drug use, not only using the drug, but ill as a result of it, mm-hmm. um, that's really a, a, an almost inestimable cost. Right. And, and um, just to clear it up for anybody that the, the opposite of harm, uh, harm reductionist approach would be an um, uh, abstinence approach, I believe. So just yeah. talk quickly about the contrast to shed any light on why well, the, harm reduction you, is maybe a better, a better way, honestly. Well, harm reduction, first of all, in where these, where harm reduction policies have gone into place, for instance, in England, the HIV epidemic, they have way less HIV and they have since they started these programs in the nineties than we have mm-hmm. there. It's in the U S science never really bought into the moralistic judgmental mode of you're a, you're a, a bad person with a poor character if you use drugs, but it did choose abstinence as the way to go to avoid the, the problems. Now, of course, that's like saying, I'm not going to drive my car. (laughs) You know, I mean, we wear seatbelts. Now, mind you, seatbelts also cause injury. Mm 
I mean, you get very specific seatbelt-associated injuries if you're in a car accident. So, you know, harm reduction is something we do on a minute-to-minute basis. It also helps address the stigma associated with drug use, which is a very big deal. Um, Yeah, and and talk a little bit about how having having these sites um, will help. I mean, obviously, it's going to help with clear safety guide, you know, clear, clear uh, safety, clean needles, things like this that you've been talking about, but how might it help with stigma? How do, how might these centers help with stigma and, and this, this wall that we have where we act like we're not all addicted or, and treat addicts like, you know, oh, I think, correct me, doc, but I think addicts actually isn't, isn't maybe the kindest word, should we say, uh, people who struggle with substance abuse? Substance, you know, it depends on who you're talking to. Um, I speak to a lot of people who use drugs, so I tend to sometimes use their language, which really isn't quite the politically correct language. But people with addictions, I think you can say, um, you know, people with substance use disorders, you can say. Um, so okay. you asked so back to the question, I, how, it, how it can help with stigma and how it has helped with stigma in other places like Canada and, and Europe that, that have ha, have implemented um you know, uh, safe use sites for, for a while. So number one, I don't think that that's the biggest thing it does. I think it does other safe injection sites do other things that are really other otherwise important, but in terms of stigma, particularly you communities, you know, there's already been a little bit of a question about, do we have these sites in the poorer neighborhoods? Does it, it tends to be the poorer neighborhoods where homeless people and or people who are using drugs are safer being on the street. They don't get chased away. You know, they, they're more likely perhaps to, to know some people there or to have places where smaller stores where they can get something. You know, it's, it's just they're left alone much more than in the wealthier neighborhoods. So personally, I think that there should be these sites everywhere. I think that while it will introduce a larger number of people who use drugs to that area, after a while, when you're exposed to something, I think it's helpful. Okay. I mean, you know, if this is not the crack epidemic now with a lot of violence, mm-hmm. I mean, it, this is always going to be an issue, how it addresses stigma, but it does help the people who are going there because it helps them feel more part of a community and less isolated, more part of the place where they live. And it helps them start to gain entry into places where they can get treatment. They can get tested for HIV. They can get tested for hep C in New York. Thank God they can get all this treatment free. You know, we have great Medicaid and hep C is very easy to treat now. So, we can, that sort of thing helps how people think of themselves and it stabilizes them in a a certain way. And some of those people are going to go for treatment and say, you know, I don't want to use this anymore. Mm -hmm. Especially in the time of fentanyl. I honestly don't, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to, and 
and you know, I'm going to interrupt you here um, because I want to talk a little bit about this, this really harsh reality that we haven't touched too much on. You know, there's been a spike in ODs, which is obviously has something to do with the times that we're in, but it also has to do with what's in the drugs between April, 2020 and 2021, a hundred thousand people in the U S died of overdoses. And this was a 30% increase from the year before. And in addition to that, 2020 was actually the deadliest year on record for ODs, both here in New York and across the globe. Every four hours, in New York, someone dies of an OD. And like I said, well, sure, you know, things are tough. Maybe people are using more. A lot of drugs, anywhere from it started out being opiates, but now it's things like Xanax or party drugs that you might find. They're even hearing about it with marijuana are laced with fentanyl. Tell us what fentanyl is, why it's being laced, its dangers, and uh, Narcan you know, and the importance of having that around. I know that's a lot. We have a couple of minutes here. Okay, so I'm going to try and do this quickly. First of all, in the old days, you'd get a capsule of heroin and it would get four guys off and they often knew where it came from and they knew the potency of it. These Those days are long gone. Um, many people are not are coming to addiction treatment because of fentanyl, because they're scared stiff of it. Fentanyl is a, a, a laboratory-made chemical that the opioid receptor loves. So it loves it more than anything. So it hooks right up onto it. And fentanyl has been engineered to work very quickly for a short time, very strongly. So for instance, it's used in brief surgeries like colonoscopies and abortions. Um, And it goes out of your system very quickly if you don't use it chronically. So I, I'll, I'll illustrate fentanyl to you. A person that regularly shot heroin put the needle in his arm and said, I knew it as soon as I pushed. Me, large tolerance has been using for 15 years, using from the same person. Boom, OD'd. Happily, obviously, could tell me the story, so did not die. But... It, you, and there's really kind of no way to know. You can test your drugs for fentanyl, and that's very important. But this is not exactly controlled drug potency. You have no clue the volume. You have no, you know, you have no clue of what, how much it is you're getting. As you said, they're now spraying it on fentanyl. So people are dying smoking I'm on marijuana. So people are dying smoking plant-based pot, not vaping, from a okay. fentanyl overdose. And so, folks, this is a this is a really great thing about the sites is that, you know, sure, maybe you can test your drugs there, but you don't know. Maybe you'll test the part that has fentanyl in it. Maybe you won't. But there will be people there with naloxone, Narcan that can revive somebody if they OD. Someone's watching you if you OD. You know, there's going to be a sober person there that can revive you. So look into these sites. There's going to be more to come. Like I said, not a lot of info. Thank you so much, Dr. Melanie McConnell, New York City-based substance abuse doctor, has done a lot of great work in the city. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to have to leave it there. We're going to go to a short music break before our third segment. Thank you, Amba. That was more of Korodia by Nawahawa Dum- Numbia, excuse me. 
And uh, we will move on to our third segment here. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. And I am Amba Gergarian, your host for today with the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Speaking of the Independent, we had a recent article from author Kostas Panayotakis, professor of sociology at the New York City College of Technology and author of The Capitalist Mode of Destruction. And his article was called Omicron Variant Underscores Why We Must Abolish Global Vaccine Apartheid. So as we know, a new coronavirus variant, the Omicron variant, was just discovered in South Africa. And we're faced with the possibility that it may prove resistant to vaccines that we'd hope to bring, you know, that we would hope to use to bring the pandemic under control. And so here to talk about his article, Omicron variant underscores why we must abolish global vaccine apartheid is author Kostas Panayotakis. Kostas, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, Amber. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, what uh, the article talks about is the fact that uh, scientists have have been warning us for a long time that uh, unless... um, we put an end to the vaccine apartheid, where you have basically a situation where rich countries like the U.S. Uh, are hoarding the vaccine. They have more doses than uh, than is needed for their population, and the vaccines are going to waste, basically. And meanwhile, you have um, countries in the global south that are basically excluded, uh, you know, where the large numbers of people would love to have access to the vaccine, but... Uh, uh, but they don't. And as a result, what that means is that um, uh, the, the, the virus has um, an opportunity to basically keep uh, mutating into new strains that can be much more transmissible and uh, potentially even more, more, more dangerous. Um, so we've seen that with the Delta variant. Uh, mm-hmm. We may see that uh, with the Omicron variant. So, you know, uh, so there is an element, you know, in rich countries like the U.S., oftentimes there is a lot of emphasis on the irrationality of anti-vaxxers, and that's understandable to some extent. But, you know, on the other hand, the authorities who are basically telling everybody they should uh, vaccinate themselves, at the same time, they don't take the steps that are needed to make sure that uh, the global apartheid uh, in terms of vaccines is... Uh, ended immediately. So you may have uh, some countries like Germany and, uh, you know, vetoing uh, the suspension of the patents, for example, and even the U.S. doing, you know, very, very little. I mean, this has to be, the vaccines have to be um, available immediately. And, uh, you know, if you force, uh, you know, this uh, technology to be shared, the, the, the vaccine makers to share the technology, you could have... Uh, basically manufacturing of the vaccine, you know, in many uh, countries around the world because we need, uh, you know, billions and billions of, uh, of doses, basically. Um, and uh, so it's like basic, uh, basically the irrationality is not just on the part of the anti-vaxxers. It's also on the part of, you know, the sort of uh, our politicians who are talking about this issue being very urgent and they don't act that way. And when there is this mm. uh, contradiction, by the way, it sort of funds the kind of paranoia of the anti-vaxxers because they can right. sort of say, well, if you think that this is so urgent, how come you're not doing what uh, the scientists are saying 
uh, must be done. So you're probably just, uh, you know, exaggerating because clearly if it was that dangerous, you would basically pull um, all the plugs. But So it's like um, this kind of irrationality that is um, underwritten and supported by basically capitalist interest, including the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, uh, you know, on Friday, the, the stock markets around the world were basically collapsed and Moderna, its uh, share went up by 20% when everything else was, you know, uh, going down uh, down the toilet. It sort of shows you, it's like a, a, a case of your death is my profit. Right, which is unfortunately all too common with, with the situation that we have on our hands, like you said, where, you know, the government is just, you know, really in bed with with corporate interest and, and, and fiscal interest over the interest of people. Now, you know, um, I think the the or I'm sure I read yesterday the uh, the vaccination rate in, in the continent of Africa is 7 percent compared to 59 uh, percent in the U.S. and higher in other, um, you know, global north or Western countries. So you, you, one point you mentioned in, in your article is is how this you know, how this awareness of um, not only vaccine apartheid, but hypocrisy on the part of, of, of these politicians could potentially create global solidarity, could potentially create a movement, you know, for um, an undoing of this apartheid. Talk about this global solidarity you envision and, and how possible you think it is that it would happen. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a situation, it's similar actually to the situation with a climate crisis where the authorities are not really the voice of reason. They are not the representatives of science. And it's sort of um, the, the role of sort of being the voice of reason is basically going over to social movements who have to basically put pressure for, you know, what needs to happen to actually happen for science and what the scientists are saying to be actually, you know, to, ha to get the hearing that... Um, uh, that they deserve. So I think, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, we think of um, uh, social movements as being motivated by idealism and so on and so forth, uh, and level of altruism. And that may be to some extent true sometimes. But at the same mm -hmm. time, this is a case where it's like blatant self-interest. It's like completely irrational. It's, uh, you know, unless everybody gets vaccinated, nobody is uh, safe, especially in today's globalized uh, world. I mean, you know, it, like a city, we live in a city like New York City. I mean, when you have, uh, you know, people come and go from places like Hong Kong and South Africa and London and Europe and, uh, you know, Israel all the time to New York City. I mean, how can you realistically expect that you can, you know, focus on vaccinating the people in your city or even in your country and, um, you know, uh, and think that, uh, that you're doing something. I mean, uh, we have to, if we really think that uh, the virus is a really sort of uh, urgent problem, we have to act accordingly. And we're not doing that. Right. Or well, the people, you know, the authorities who would, should be doing that are not uh, doing that. And they will need to have a sort of massive movement to, like, push them in that direction. I mean... The climate justice movement is much more developed because it has had some, you know, sort of there, it has been going on for some time. And they still haven't managed to put the pressure that is necessary. So it's like 
the problem is so urgent. Something has to be done immediately. And, you know, it's like, you know, we're sort of uh, far away from where we should be and from having the kind of movement that would be, you know, sort of powerful enough to exert that pressure. So um, it's like our, our own hope in a way. And that is that but is the start. A movement like folks. that develops very fast, you know. And maybe it's time for that to happen. We are going to have to leave it there. Thank you, Kostas Paneotakis, professor of sociology at the New York City College of Technology and author of *The Capitalist Mode of Destruction: Austerity, Ecological Crisis, and the Hollowing Out of Democracy*. I highly encourage our listeners to go over to independent.org and read his article, *Omicron Variant Underscores Why We Must Abolish Global Vaccine Apartheid*. Kostas, thank you. Thank you. And a quick thank you to John Tarleton and Reggie Johnson, our sound engineer. Um, Giving Tuesday, give to WBAI. Love you, everybody.